Surprise! Happy Monday! We've got a special episode for you. You're hearing from us off schedule because we want to tell you about Apollo Plus. And to remind you that there's a lot more 13 than what you get here on the main feed. We're bringing you two extra stories today. One is brand new, and the other is one of our Patreon-exclusive stories from last year. From now on, our second stories, and maybe third stories, will be available on Patreon and Apollo Plus. Apollo Plus is a new way of supporting all of the audio fiction shows that you love. On Apollo Plus, you pay a monthly subscription and get access to bonus content from a lot of shows. We'll have some content from our Patreon also available on Apollo Plus, and so will other shows. There is content still exclusive to our Patreon, and everything that's always been a part of your Patreon subscription is still there. It's not going anywhere. Apollo Plus is just a new way to support the creators that you love. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcast app or by going to apollopods.com forward slash plus. And unlike this feed, everything on Apollo Plus is ad-free. Check them out today. And now, Nighttime at the Doll Hospital by Shannon Frost Greenstein, followed by Live Scream by Julia LaFond. Enjoy the show. My daughter's wailing pierces the early morning calm, and I sigh inwardly. Parenting is the most magical gift I have ever been lucky enough to experience. But sometimes, I just want a goddamn hot cup of coffee. What is it, my love? I call sweetly towards the playroom, hoping that whatever it is, does not necessitate my standing up from this table. Mommy, it's Leah, she shrieks, which means I certainly will be standing up from the table, because Leah is her favorite doll, and therefore, the most important member of our family. What's wrong with Leah, honey? I ask as I reluctantly rise from my chair casting a longing glance at the steaming mug I'm leaving behind. Leah's arm is broken. Her voice has reached the pitch only dogs can hear. I round the corner and wince as I glimpse the porcelain doll cradled against her heaving chest. Leah is a vintage Madame Alexander, purchased by my grandmother for her own daughter half a century ago. This was the era when children were seen and not heard. So Leah, originally christened Sunday Farmhouse Angel or some such nonsense, stayed mostly in her display box on a shelf. When it was my turn for the doll, I preferred climbing trees and rescuing woodland creatures to playing house. And thus, she sat untouched for another few decades. In truth, Leah didn't know love until my daughter Rosie came along, bestowing the doll with her name and insisting she have a seat at every meal. Rosie sleeps gingerly next to Leah every night, though I know she must get jabbed by random ceramic limbs whenever she moves, and she schleps the doll along everywhere she goes for the rest of her waking hours. Leah is essentially my daughter's entire world, and that's why, looking at the crushed porcelain which used to be an arm, I knew we were all suddenly in extremely deep shit. 
Rosie pauses her screaming to draw a ragged breath, and then she starts over again. Mama, Leah's arm is broken. Shh, it's okay. Hey, it's okay, I say automatically. The need to pacify my child bred into my brain by billions of years of evolutionary biology. It's okay. It'll be okay. Unconvinced, Rosie keeps crying as I come into the room and bend to examine the doll in her arms. Leah's arm is definitely broken. A compound fracture, shoulder barely hanging on. It dangles precariously in the sleeve of the doll's nightgown. And I'm so conditioned by my daughter to treat Leah as my second child that I feel a surge of sympathy pain. Honey, we'll get her fixed, I soothe, gently disentangling Leah from Rosie's fingers. Fix her now, Rosie howls, and I feel the stirring of a sinus headache. Well, I stammer, I'm not quite sure... She might need more help. I'm unprepared to offer a diagnosis and treatment plan for our inanimate family member. An orthopedic surgeon, I am not. Fix her now, she repeats. My headache ratchets up. I think fondly of my formerly hot coffee. I pull my phone from the pocket of my bathrobe and Google Doll Hospital. You try saying no to a screaming three-year-old. She rules with an iron fist. Mommy, are we there yet? Rosie questions from the back seat. We are en route to the Bedford Doll Hospital, and it's starting to snow. Late afternoon daylight oozes weakly through the fat flakes, and I send up a prayer that we make it back to Cambridge before full nightfall. I have absolutely no desire to navigate the interstate in the dark, in the snow, and with a sleepy toddler who is without her favorite doll. Not quite, my love, I answer again, as I answered five minutes ago, as I answered five minutes before that. Leah is buckled into the captain's chair next to my daughter's car seat, her shattered arm plastered with cartoon-printed band-aids. It has been a hell of a day playing Florence Nightingale at Leah's bedside, following Rosie's many directives, nursing the doll's broken arm, and singing half-hearted lullabies with made-up words. I was grateful to find a doll hospital only an hour away, and even more grateful that the owner said Leah could be dropped off this evening. I am already dreading bedtime tonight in the doll's absence. Already resigned to the sleep deprivation and perpetual exhaustion for however long it takes Leah to be returned to us. Mama, Rosie starts, then falters, then she tries again. Mama, does Leah's arm hurt? My heart twinges with empathy over my baby's pain. Nothing is worse than watching those you love suffer. No, honey. I say carefully. Leah's being very brave, and I think she's okay. Rosie is silent for a moment. Thoughtful. And then she draws a deep breath. 
I steel myself for the next inevitable question. The question about mortality. The question about death. Mama. Yes? Are we there yet? Empathy rapidly drains from my heart. I grit my teeth and grasp the steering wheel with white, frustrated knuckles. Not yet! Never does time feel so relative as when you are with a small child, and the remaining minutes of the car ride seem to take eons to pass. Finally, finally, we pull off the interstate and onto an increasingly isolated series of weathered roads. Random lefts and rights, the snow beginning to accumulate, the sky darkening infinitesimally. Where are we? I mutter to myself, squinting through errant flakes and the occasional oncoming headlight. We are far outside Bedford now, beyond even the outskirts of the city. The road is lined with evergreens, winding sinuously in and out of a thick forest that seems preternaturally still. The houses are spaced far apart, hardly any lights shining through the windows. No one appears to be home. Mommy, are we? A voice pipes up from the back seat. We are. I crow with delight and surprise as we round the corner and a towering Victorian mansion comes into view. Like a lighthouse on a harbor, a glow spills from the ornate windows, a welcome respite from the gloomy lethargy of the woods. A sign reading, The Bedford Doll Hospital, hangs from the porch, and I marvel at the sheer gall of calling wherever in the rural hell we are, Bedford. We're here, Rosie cheers in agreement. Leah, you're going to see the doctor. I pull into the empty parking lot and heave myself out of the driver's seat, opening the door to the back. I release Rosie from her car seat, contorting myself to unbuckle Leah without ripping off the rest of her arm. Finally, we are ready. So I guide my daughter across the snowy asphalt towards the porch steps. Mama, Leah is cold. So am I, I mutter, impatient to get inside and out of the wind, impatient with the slow speed at which children always seem to walk in inclement weather. Hurry, hurry, let's go in where it's warm. I'm about to ring the bell when I notice the note taped to the glass from the other side of the window. Come right in, Rosie and Leah. I'm in the operating room. The note is signed, Dr. Conway, which is adorable in a way that makes me feel slightly sad, and which also corresponds to the reviews I googled about this doll doctor. So I pull open the door and hustle Rosie in out of the cold. Hello? Rosie shouts, her voice echoing, and I shush her automatically. We're standing under a massive chandelier in a sweeping entryway that opens into a formal sitting room with high ceilings. The scene is as austere as a church, and I feel the childhood Catholic conditioning kicking in as I speak in a whisper. Honey, don't shout. I look around. There are a number of uncomfortable-looking high-backed chairs, a velvet sofa, a garish fainting chaise that I would kill to have in my family room for the sake of melodrama alone. The curtains are brocade and hang to the ground. 
A smattering of seascapes and stuffy-looking portraits adorn the walls. The room is immaculate, but dusty. It looks forlorn. It looks forgotten. And everywhere, there are dolls. Standing dolls, sitting dolls, short dolls, tall dolls, dressy dolls, naked dolls, dolls with long hair, dolls with no hair. Everywhere there are dolls, and everywhere there are dolls' eyes regarding us unblinkingly. I glance down at Rosie, curious to see her reaction. Like I said, dolls don't really do it for me, but for Rosie, literally anything that can be mothered, she mothers. It's usually cute, and occasionally disgusting, when it involves half-dead worms drying on the sidewalk. She is looking around with wide eyes, mouth agape. The sight has apparently rendered her speechless. A rarity. And I revel in the moment of silence, straining my ears for some clue as to Dr. Conway's whereabouts. It's quiet, however, and I sigh with exasperation. This day has already lasted an entire lifetime, and there is still the ride home and dinner and the bedtime process to get through. I have no desire to explore the confines of a doll hospital looking for the operating room and its wayward surgeon while the snow piles up outside. Hello, I call tentatively, guiding Rosie out of the foyer and onto an upholstered armchair automatically holding out my arms to receive Leah as Rosie takes off her coat. Dr. Conway? Dr. Conway! echoes Rosie. We wait, the silence swelling around us like an overture. Finally, I hand Leah back to my daughter and dig in my pocket for my phone. My phone, however, has apparently died in the time since we left the car. I jab the touchscreen fruitlessly, marveling that the technological revolution has given us everything but battery life. The phone stays dark, and I successfully resist the urge to tell it how useless it is. Dr. Conway! Rosie continues to yell as I groan with frustration. My eyes panning the room for some clue as to what my next step should be. It is, unfortunately, a somewhat pointless search. There are no ringing phones or buzzing printers. I can't make out the drone of other voices. Nothing is moving. There is, in fact, absolutely none of the bustle and white noise that usually indicate a business is churning away under the invisible hand of capitalism. The first stirrings of unease are already starting to creep in compounded by the wide-eyed stare of dozens upon dozens of plastic eyes. And then, the power cuts out. Shit, I squeal involuntarily, the inner censorship bred by my motherhood kicking in a second too late. I mean, shoot. Mama, my daughter admonishes in surprise. The lack of light in her young world is somehow less concerning to her than my breach of the social contract. You swore. You're right, I agree, adrenaline coursing through my amygdala from the shock of the sudden darkness. That was the wrong decision. Internally, however, I'm feeling less agreeable. 
The snow must be worsening. It's the only explanation. While we've been sitting here waiting for the doll surgeon, an eerie allegory to my own experiences with Western healthcare, come to think of it, the weather has been deteriorating, and now the power lines are down. Turn on the lights, Rosie whines. Through the stiff window dressings, the rapidly falling darkness is announcing itself outside. The room already seems chillier than it did when we first entered. Far off, so faintly I might be imagining it, I hear a dog howl, the timber of its voice sending a wave of shivers down my spine. Okay, my dear, I say with sudden conviction. New plan. I pull Rosie to her feet, gritting my teeth as I prepare for metaphorical battle here on the precipice of my announcement. We, I begin slowly, shoving my daughter into her puffy down coat, mainly by feel, are going to go home instead. Rosie's shout, when it interrupts me, is not the staunch refusal to leave I had originally anticipated. Mommy, I don't have Leah, she yells with true alarm, but I'm so prepared for the first scenario I envisioned that I continue undeterred for a few more seconds. And we can come back to the doll hospital tomorrow, when Dr. Conway can see Leah. Her words register, then, and I'm confused. What do you mean, baby? You don't have Leah. I just gave her to you a minute ago. Rosie bursts into frantic tears, and I feel the walls start to close in on me. A perfect example of the unique claustrophobia born from the overstimulation that is parenting a toddler. She's gone, Rosie sobs. My patience is unraveling proportionately with her growing hysteria. Where did she go? I'm already trying to zipper Rosie's coat, button my own jacket, locate my keys, get us to the warmth of the car, and not bang into any antique furniture on the way. Now I'm also responsible for locating wherever the hell she's left Leah, it would seem, and I literally bite the inside of my cheeks to avoid losing my shit on my daughter as I usher us towards the door. I'll find her, I snap. First, get in the car, I order. You need to be more responsible, I lecture. Why won't this door freaking open? I question. It is rhetorical, obviously. Something even Rosie understands, despite the rage in which my voice is currently steeped. But also understandable. Because I am trying with all my might, and there is no reason I can see why the mansion's front door is refusing to open. I pull fruitlessly on the handle for several seconds, my brain refusing to believe the empirical evidence that the door remains closed. Oh, God damn it! I start to rant, beyond annoyed that the door has apparently locked automatically upon closing when I feel Rosie's fingers slip into my free hand. Mama, I'm sorry I lost Leah. Are we trapped here in the dark forever? Her voice is wobbling with worry. I feel instant guilt for my temper. It's not her fault we've been ghosted by a doll surgeon, or that the last beams of daylight have just disappeared in the west. It's nighttime now, and she's tired. I absentmindedly recall the parenting classes all of the new parents were required to take at my hospital before leaving with their newborns. Most of the content was ridiculous, 
but I do find the mindfulness skills I learned useful, especially when I'm feeling overwhelmed by motherhood. And I still think fondly of that pledge we all signed not to shake our babies, even if we were really tempted. Mindful, I remind myself silently, running a scan of my senses and my emotions, slowly counting to five so I can respond to Rosie calmly. No, honey, I assure her. And I'm sorry I yelled at you for losing Leah. We'll get her just as soon as I can find. Light is the term I'm intending to use, and perhaps it is the moment I've taken to center myself. But I remember the lighter deep in my purse, even as I reach the end of the sentence. <laughs> Light, I exclaim gleefully. Hold on, Rosie. Let me have my hand back. I'm not a smoker, of course. No, sir, not me. I'm a wife and a mother and a middle-aged suburbanite who got all of the public health announcements about smoking in school. So I certainly don't indulge in sucking on coffin nails. Certainly not. Not even when I'm really tempted. And even then, well, not like a whole cigarette. Half of one, max. And like hardly ever. But I do have an emergency lighter present, as all mostly quit, practically abstinent smokers tend to. And I have never been more grateful for my lack of willpower than now. As I dig blindly through my handbag, my fingertips projecting rogue cough drops and nickels. Finally, I feel the familiar shape of my lighter, and I pull it out with a noise of victory. It might be blizzarding, and we might have made this entire drive for nothing, and Leah's arm might still be broken, and most pressingly, we might not know exactly how to get out of here, but I am taking names and tackling problems now. First, I vanquish the darkness. Then, I save the day, because I am woman, and I am mommy, and I am flying high on mindfulness. I flick the lighter with a satisfying grating sound, and the dark maw around us immediately solidifies into a foyer once again. Eerie shadows dance on the walls. Are you okay, lovely? I ask, lowering the flame to throw light on Rosie's face. Her eyes are teary, and she's chewing on one of her fingers. Leah, she manages around the finger, and I obediently turn in a circle holding the lighter aloft so I appear like a diminutive Lady Liberty. Stay there, I instruct, and I shuffle back to where Rosie was sitting when she last had Leah. I peer in the cushions, around the chair legs, along the prim carpeting, but I do not see the doll anywhere. The lighter is getting hot. It's in the moment that I finally let the flame die with a hiss of pain that I hear the loud thud above my head. Mama, I want the lights. Rosie is far more traumatized by the sudden darkness this time around, and I fight the Darwinian urge to run pell-mell through the darkness and protect my offspring. Rosie, shh, I think I hear Dr. Conway upstairs. Sure enough, there's another thud, and then a scraping noise, like something heavy being dragged. Finally, I huff. Relieved to have fixed something at this point. Movement above means the doll surgeon, and the doll surgeon means a flashlight or a cell phone. Or, 
if nothing else, the key to the front door. I snapped the lighter again, surveying the grand staircase in front of me. It's steep and uncarpeted. It ascends into a liquid blackness that extends beyond the orb of my light. I picture trying to lead a toddler up these precarious steps into the dark, without setting her on fire, then navigating an unfamiliar house, and I shudder. I kill the lighter and edge over to where Rosie still stands by the door. Rosie, can you stand here for a minute while I go upstairs? No, she answers immediately, and I laugh inwardly at my own naivete in thinking that would actually work. Sweetie, I need to go find Dr. Conway, and it will be much faster to go by myself. She'll be able to fix Leah's arm once she comes down. I trail off deliberately as Rosie, no stranger to where her interests lie, muses upon this. She finally acquiesces, and I do not wait a single moment before starting to climb the stairs. An okay from a three-year-old is actually an okay for now, until I get distracted and forget what I'm supposed to be doing. I know that Rosie will come to look for me if I take too long. I know it in my bones, and I intend to be back in the car, writing a strongly worded Yelp review about the customer service at the Bedford Doll Hospital, way before that happens. I crest the stairs, the flame flickering and the lighter once again growing hot in my hand. I get a glimpse of a long hallway with doors lining either side before I give my wrist a quick shake to extinguish the fire. The second floor is obviously where the actual work is done. The operating room must be up here. Dr. Conway, I call out, my voice sounding bulky in the dark, like it's grown a dimension, like it's overcompensating for my eyes. There is silence. I'm about to yell again when I hear the same scraping noise, this time louder and ahead of me to the left. What is she doing? I question aloud. I am so over this day. Once more, guiding my way with the lighter, I approach the door from behind which I think the noise is originating. I am mentally picturing a scatterbrained artist, an oblivious woman wearing earpods and bent over a doll, the blackout beyond her limited power of observation thanks to a battery-run operating lamp. In my head, I'm practicing exactly which choice words I'll employ first, mentally already requesting Leah's arm be repaired free of charge. When I hear a soft dripping, it's the nagging splash of a faucet that hasn't been fully turned off. I raise my fist to knock, then recall the image my brain had just conjured of the woman wearing earpods. Instead, I reach out my hand, grasp the doorknob, Twist it sharply, push open the door, and enter the room, clicking the flame alight to announce my presence. It's an emergency lighter, like I said. I've had it forever. It doesn't get much use. Like I said, I'm barely a smoker. All of that to say, this lighter is old. It's been running on fumes. I see clearly into the room for only a few seconds before the lighter fluid runs out and full darkness descends once again. But a few seconds are all I need to see that there is blood everywhere. 
A woman I can only assume as Dr. Conway is hung from the curtain rod. Her arms outstretched like a minister at a revival. She has been flayed. Her eyes are missing. Dozens of stab wounds have turned her formerly white coat a deep maroon. Blood drips relentlessly into growing puddles on the floor. And, printed haphazardly over her body, over the floor, over the countertops, over literally everything, are hundreds of tiny, bloody footprints. My optic nerve takes a split second to transmit this sensory information to my brain. There's a blissful instant of confusion before mortal fear lights up my limbic system with a single command in neon red. Get to Rosie. Another split second and then, Mommy, it's Leah. I hear her joyful shriek from downstairs. I start screaming as loudly as I'm able. No, no, Rosie, stay away from her. I whirl around and take a single step toward the hallway as the door slams shut in my face. Tiny voices echo from the other side. A choir of maniacal laughter in the brief moment before my daughter begins to scream. Yellow police tape crisscrosses the entrance to Buck Bean Asylum. The plastic shines under my headlamp, fresh, unlike the torn, discarded scraps half buried by the shriveled up oak leaves. Though the asylum closed years ago, the structure remains, and so do the spirits of the patients. That's the rumor, at least. I'm here to see if it's true. And, of course, to document it for my followers. If I can find evidence, real evidence, of paranormal activity, I might finally break into the thousands. Either way, my subscribers will love this place. Decayed, overgrown, and full of creeping shadows. Lurking in the corners, their breathing muffled until you turn your back. I shake my head. If I let myself get psyched out this early in the investigation, I'll never last the entire night. I jimmy the cheap lock in under a minute with my old high school ID. As soon as I cross the threshold, the air turns so moldy, I gag. The peeling wallpaper has nearly rotted away, held up only by a thick layer of spray paint. I set my tripod in the corner, carefully pointed away from the most obscene graffiti. I run through a quick spiel about the place. Then, I do audio recording and EMF readings. Nothing. But, the night is young. Next, I pick my way through the wards, careful of the rotting floorboards, peeking through the crumbling tile. Last thing I need is a broken ankle, or splinters, or tetanus. 
all seem like very real possibilities here amidst the rusted bed frames and stained walls. But I'm even more worried about ghosts. Anyone here? I call out, camera in one hand, EMF reader in the other. Do you want to talk? The readings remain steady. I try not to let my relief show. Trying to attract the attention of ghosts is my least favorite part of the job, even though I'm here to prove the existence of the paranormal. But what would my fans think if they realized that I wasn't disappointed? That I'd rather passively observe than engage with whomever or whatever might linger in the spaces steeped with suffering. Then again, after seeing the cruelty humans are capable of, any remaining patients have every right to be more afraid of me than I am of them. I shudder at the thought, and then I call out again. The people who hurt you are long gone. I promise, I just want to talk. Though my goosebumps persist, thanks to the ever-present drafts, the continuing lack of a response lets me breathe easier. I switch to speaking to my viewers, giving them broader historical context, including eugenics and figures from the early 20th century. I screamed, dropping everything as I dived behind an overturned chair. I cowered in silence, but nothing happened. It's so quiet that my ears are ringing. Cursing, I retrieved the camera and EMF reader. I'll have to edit this part out. It wouldn't be the first time, and I doubt it would be the last. At least no one was actually here to see me freaking out over nothing. But was it nothing? I circled back to the front of Buckbean Asylum. The door, which I'd left ajar, is firmly closed. Nodding, I allowed myself to breathe again. The wind blew the door shut. That's all it was. The resulting adrenaline crash leaves me fatigued to my bones. I pop a caffeine pill before continuing. Better jittery than asleep on the job. It's good odds that the rest of the night will be long stretches of monotony, interrupted by bursts of panic when my amped up imagination overreacts again. Eventually, I encounter a door scrawled with the words, do not enter ghosts inside with a red handprint as a signature. Spray paint, though the artist was clearly trying to invoke blood. It was childish, tacky, and gruesome all at once. But my followers will eat it up. Check this out, I stage whispered, zooming in. It could be teen vandals or we could be coming up on a paranormal hotspot. I glanced to my EMF meter. Nothing so far, but let's see what we can find. To my surprise, it's locked. I stow the meter and point my camera away as I rummage through my wallet. Thankfully, 
It's the same cheap lock as the front door. Oh, looks like it was just stuck. I narrate, lying blithely. Trespassing is bad, and breaking and entering is worse. My headlamp bounces off the medicine bottles and glass shards, giving the room an eerie blue tint. Perfect. I think we're in the dispensary. I continue to narrate, stepping gingerly around the broken glass. I doubt we'll see much activity in here since this would have been off-limits to the patients. My stomach churns as the words hang in the air. Why should the patients be doomed to be trapped here while the monsters who tormented them moved on? Injustice is layered on injustice. Yet another reason to hope this place isn't haunted. The EMF reader chirps. I take it out, discovering a massive spike. Edging toward the door, I barely suppress the urge to run. In front of me, there's a woman standing. She wasn't there a moment ago. Excuse me, patients aren't allowed back here. The camera shakes as I pivot slowly. She's dressed as a nurse, flickering insubstantially in the corner. I was too shocked to speak. Instead, I just stammered out a response, something about being a visitor, not a patient. The temperature in the room is plummeting. She drifts closer. I can't see through her anymore. She's becoming more solid, more real. Of course you are. You have a severe case of melancholia. Her words hit me like a punch to the gut. How does she know about my depression? I've kept it hidden from everybody. Not even my fiance knows. She looked down, consulting her papers. I see. You've been scheduled for a... procedure. I don't wait to find out what that means. I run, full tilt, heedless of the broken glass, only for the door to slam in my face. I don't even get a chance to turn around. I hear her approach. I feel talons digging into my shoulder. And then she says, with a reassuring voice, Don't worry. It'll be over soon. We hope you enjoyed the bonus episodes this week. For more content like this, including a backlog of additional monthly stories, check us out on Apollo Plus. If you're looking for even more bonus content, head on over to the 13 Podcast Patreon. We'll have links in the show notes. See you soon.